Hey sinners, Serotonin here, just dropping in with a quick intro. This podcast was originally written and recorded for Spotify, where I'm able to embed some ripper tunes between segments to support the topics, new releases, or particular artists which are discussed. This version has been adjusted to allow sharing on alternate platforms and unfortunately won't include those tracks, which might make my silly segues and transitions just a little bit strange. If you would like to be able to check out the songs that were intended to be part of this episode, jump through the Sin and Steel link tree to the songs from the Sin and Steel podcast playlist, or see the track listing in the description of the episode. Hello and welcome to Sin and Steel, the heavy metal podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Tonin, and in today's episode, we're bringing two of my beloved worlds together. We're talking all things video games and, of course, metal. We're going to be looking at bands who have their own games, songs about games, metal-themed games, video game soundtracks, and loads more. Look, this is going to be a big one, because while I can guarantee there are things I've missed, it's very extensive, and it's packed with a lot of cool shit, or at least what I think is cool shit, and I hope you do too. If you're listening on Spotify, you'll also get to enjoy some killer tracks between segments with songs from Gwar, Dragon Force, Master Sword, Power Glove, Megadeth, Mick Gordon, and more. So, the game is on. That was Halloween with The Game Is On, and I feel like that was a great way to kick off today's topic. The song explores video games, particularly the Game Boy, and although it plays on the idea of losing your mind if you play for too long, it also provides a good summary for one of the main reasons video games are so appealing. They take us to another world, away from reality, where we don't have to worry about the day-to-day bullshit, we can explore things that we can't in real life, and just lose ourselves in it. I would say that that's a trait that games often share with metal, that escape from reality, and it's one of the reasons those two worlds merge so well. There are a bunch of things we can talk about when looking at heavy metal in video games, so I've tried to break things into a few key categories. They will intermingle a little bit, but I'm hoping I've found a cohesive balance. We're going to start off with bands who have their own games. So in our world of consumerism, where money is key, endorsements, sponsorships, and collaborations that make money or make more money, they're always going to be a thing. It makes sense that bands are going to take advantage of this, especially where there's a crossover of interests in the fan base. You have to pay for that rock star lifestyle, the booze, drugs, women, and all those hotel bills somehow, right? So endorsements are a good option. If they can endorse slot machines and pinball machines, video games were a logical next step. The first rock band to land their own video game was Journey, and it was something they were actively seeking out. Steve Smith, their drummer, was an avid player of the game Defender, once holding a world record in the game, and the band kept a machine in their tour van to play while they were on the road. To them, getting their own video game was a goal they had set, so when they were approached by Data Age, they were all in. So in 1982, by designer J. Ray Dedling, for the Atari 2600 was Journey Escape, a vertical scroller based around obstacle dodging. The plot is that you, the player, were on the road with Journey. A performance has ended and you need to guide the band members back to their car, or their escape vehicle, which was shaped like a scarab to link back to their album art, um, because they need to get to their next gig. But there are hordes of groupies, paparazzi and promoters getting in the way. 
You can collect power-ups from roadies or find the band's manager, who looks like the Kool-Aid man, to help you run all the way to the vehicle. If you get hit along the way, you don't lose health. You just lose that hard-earned cash that the band were originally going to get paid for the gig. The second video game to feature a rock band was Journey. Yes, Journey took both the first and second places because in 1983, Bali Midway took them to the arcade, releasing the game to coincide with a US tour. The game featured black and white photos of the band's faces placed onto cartoon bodies, which was a new technology at the time and originally intended for use by the player in a different game. But while location testing for that game with this function, someone uh, exposed themselves to the camera and so the testing was failed. People just can't help themselves, can they? So using it to create the characters for another game was a different way for them to still put that technology to use. The objective of the game was to collect the band members' instruments, which had been stolen by crazed alien fans and placed on different planets. You'd fly the Scarab vehicle to a planet and then play a mini-game that had you maneuvering through different obstacles, like spinning gates, jumping across drums, operating a jetpack, or avoiding missiles. Once you got the instruments, the players take into a bonus round where the band play a concert and you move a roadie around to prevent the fans reaching the stage. But if you fail, the instruments are taken again, the band runs away, and you start all over with increased difficulty. In the Journey Escape game, there was a short clip from Don't Stop Believing used in the intro, but it otherwise didn't contain any of Journey's music. This time with Journey, there were some versions of songs throughout all the mini-games, but the developers also wanted to be able to use a full track for the finale, just not a video game version. So they came up with a system that allowed them to place a proper tape in the cabinet and then programmed it to turn on when you hit the right point of the game. This was very innovative at the time and it's a pretty cool way to work in the actual tracks. A few years later and we had a couple of metal bands releasing games in 1992, including Motley Crue with Crew Ball. This was a pretty basic pinball game developed by New FX and published by EA originally for the Sega Genesis. They had this ridiculous plot where you were playing as Motley Crue's mascot, Alistair Fiend, who's trying to listen to the music really loud all night long. Come on, man. Don't be a cunt. Turn it off. Let your neighbor sleep. <laughs> anyway, your neighbor Craig, he keeps trying to turn the music down. So when you beat part of a level, you're trying to get closer to the volume button and cranking it up. There's barely any changes between levels except for an increase in volume, but when you get to the end, you have to defeat the boss, Mr. Gore. Apparently the game was already pretty much finished before Motley Crue got involved. The game's producer, Richard Robbins, had originally tried to get it licensed as Headbangers Ball, but MTV weren't really keen. So then they were just going to call it Twisted Flipper and have it as a generic metal game, but uh, last minute they were able to get an endorsement deal with Motley Crue. Also in 92, the self-titled Motorhead was released. Developed by Kaitsu Software, originally released on the Commodore Amiga and later on the Atari ST, this was a side-scrolling beat-em-up. The idea was that Motorhead had rolled into town to play a gig, but was set upon by a bunch of hooligans and all the bandmates, crew, everyone was kidnapped, except for Lemmy, who was too busy having a puke. So it's up to Lemmy to fight his way through six different music-themed venues and a whole lot of people including country bumpkins, punks, rappers, hippies, ravers, and goths. This is definitely the most advanced of the game so far because you can not only run, jump, and punch, but you can headbutt, you can spit on your enemies, whack them with your bass, shoot power cords at them, or burp in their general direction. 
When defeated, your enemies drop cans of beer and bottles of Jack, of course, and you can collect golden snaggletooths for power-ups. Every level you save a bandmate, then you head off for a drive to collect some power-ups and then jump into a bonus round that explores a bunch of touring musician tropes, like smashing up hotel rooms, picking up groupies outside of bars, and trying to down as many drinks as you can. At the end of the game, once you've saved the whole band, you're rewarded with a video game performance of the song Motorhead. Lemmy endorsing a video game doesn't come as a complete surprise. Not only has he made a few other appearances in games, which we'll get into later, but he was a big fan of video games himself. His favourite game was Tempest, a 1981 arcade shooting game. In 2009, before a show at the Roseland Theatre, Lemmy decided to make a stop at a local arcade, now known as the Ground Control Classic Arcade. He managed to score himself two high scores on the game, the second and third highest, and to celebrate, he put everyone that was at the arcade on the guest list for the show. He was also known to have a favourite bar top video poker machine at the Rainbow, which was taken to his home when his health was declining. He was said to have been found in front of this when he died. So before we jump into the next one, here's Motorhead. That was Motorhead with Motorhead. Next up, we have Aerosmith with a game that's notorious for how awful it is, Revolution X. This was a gallery rail shooter arcade machine developed by Midway and released in 1994. It's set in a dystopian 1996 where the New Order Nation, a corrupt government, is led by a dominatrix bad bitch named Helga, who's played by Kerry Hoskins, who also played Sonya Blade in several of the Mortal Kombat games. The NON, or we'll just call them the non, have declared war on youth culture and banned all forms of music, television, magazines, and of course, video games. In similar fashion to Motorhead, the band are kidnapped, except this time it's all of them, and it's up to you to just start blasting, fighting the non-troops and then traveling to each of their bases to save the bandmates and destroy their headquarters. Each mission is kicked off with a briefing done by Steve Tyler and mostly just involves shooting endless barrages of enemies, collecting CD-shaped power-ups and saving bikini-clad hostages who are apparently also played by Kerry Hoskins. A number of Aerosmith tracks are featured on a loop, including Eat the Rich, Sweet Emotion, Toys in the Attic and an elevator music version of Love in an Elevator when you step into the elevator in the jungle level. The console versions featured a bunch more, including Ragdoll on the main menu, and for the ending they had Dude Looks Like a Lady, which is kind of fitting given that the evil but beautiful Helga turns out to not be the babe she presented as, but is in fact a big bad skeleton dude. There were plans in place to do a second edition of Revolution X with Public Enemy instead, which is why they didn't just straight out name it something Aerosmith specific. But with the negative reaction, particularly to the home port of the Aerosmith game, the second one was shut down. As with Journey, one game was not enough for Aerosmith, so before we got Guitar Hero, we got Quest for Fame. Developed by Virtual Music Entertainment and distributed for PC through IBM in 1995, this was an early rhythm game that used what it called a V-Pick, a large plastic pick-like controller that just used vibrations to follow the movement of your strumming. You play as a rock guitarist who works their way up from bedroom rehearsals to a garage band, playing clubs, and then becoming a rock legend playing alongside Aerosmith. You could play the pick on an air guitar, use your leg, or pick up an object like a tennis racket, a cricket bat, whatever. Anything you wanted to play as a guitar was your guitar. They did eventually also sell a specialty plastic guitar for the game that included volume buttons, effects buttons, and just one metal string to strum. 
Later on in 1999, Namco purchased the company and released an arcade version of the game exclusively in Japan, where it included a full-size plastic guitar that looks pretty much like the Guitar Hero ones without buttons, and a one-panel drum with V-sticks similar to the V-pick. I couldn't find the specific track listing for this game, so I'll let the music do the talking. That was Aerosmith with Let the Music Do the Talking. Next up, developed by EA for PC and released in 1997, was Queen's The Eye. This fever dream of a sci-fi action game is set in a dystopian future where the world is ruled by an all-seeing ruler called The Eye, who's eradicated everything that promotes creative expression. The world's made up of pre-rendered backgrounds, polygonal characters that were animated using motion capture, and a bunch of nods to Queen's imagery thrown in throughout the world. You play as a secret agent for the Eye, who's denounced his role after discovering the existence of other domains and all these archives of music. Your character was sentenced to death through an arena-style battle that's televised for everyone to see, forced to find their way through these different domains in search of juggler keys that will enable the escape. The game features a range of Queen tracks, most of which can be played through the disc itself, while some are only heard during gameplay. Tracks include things like I Want It All, We Will Rock You, Tie Your Mother Down, Hammer to Fall, and loads more. In 1999, we saw the release of Synthetic Dimensions PC rail shooter, Ed Hunter, of course, for Iron Maiden. The game has you travelling through space and time trying to catch Eddie, beginning in London and moving through scenes inspired by the band's album covers. During gameplay, you could select a song from the track listing, just one, so whatever you picked would play on repeat until the level was complete. Outside of that, the game contained essentially a best-of album of 20 tracks, but these were as voted for by fans through Iron Maiden's website and arranged in order of most to least votes. Coming in at number one was Iron Maiden, followed closely by The Trooper and Number of the Beast, with the final track on the album being Tail Gunner. Iron Maiden had already been toying with the idea of a video game. In 1996, there were stickers on the Best of the Beast album cover stating, Available soon, Melt. Eddie's own state-of-the-art computer game. Blaze Bailey was the vocalist of Iron Maiden at the time, and apparently even he said that what they'd made was crap, so it was never finished. They announced cancellation of the project in 97, as well as confirming they would start a new project in its place. The themes of travelling through time and space are something that didn't stop with Ed Hunter. In 2015, the band launched their mobile game, Legacy of the Beast, with a similar concept, but different gameplay. The game is still going strong now, with new worlds and characters being added all the time. Generally themed around Iron Maiden albums, songs, or historical and mythological themes which they already explore, they also do the occasional collaboration with other bands. If you take a look at their character cards, you'll find some mascots including Motorhead's Snaggletooth, Anthrax's Knotman, Disturbed's The Guy, and Power Wolf's Varkalak. There are characters based on other musicians, such as Papa Emeritus, fourth of Ghost, Queen Beast, based on Alyssa from Arch Enemy, and the Shadow Sorceress, based on Christina Scabia of Lacuna Coil. Although that's the extent of their games, things don't exactly end there for Iron Maiden. Around the same time that Iron Maiden were toying with the idea of their own game in 96, Lobotomy Software had developed a first-person shooter based in ancient Egypt and titled Power Slave. 
Although it wasn't directly related to the band, it did share imagery and they were particularly careful about their European release and instead named that version Exhumed. There've been recent ports of the game to other consoles and the rebooted version has been called Power Slave Exhumed. Now, I don't know if there was any link to the band Exhumed initially, given the timing. The band had formed, but they were still in their teens and although they'd had a couple of EPs under their belt, they hadn't released their first album yet. However, with the re-release came a change in the font design, which looks a lot closer to the band's logo than it was before. It could be a stretch, but look, any indication of metalheads leaving their mark on the games is a nice thing to think about. Then in 2019, 3D Realms published the cyberpunk first-person shooter Iron Fury that was originally titled Iron Maiden. That's I-O-N, so only one letter difference. Of course, by that stage, the Legacy of the Beast game had been out for a few years, so the band and all the related people were more protective of the property. Iron Maiden opened a lawsuit against 3D Realms, seeking $2 million in damages. They claimed misappropriation of a virtually identical imitation of the Iron Maiden trademark, their words. They claimed there was a similar look and feel to their mobile game, that they used a similar font, that their skull bomb icon was a ripoff of Eddie, and what I think is the funniest claim, that the main character, Shelley Bombshell Harrison, was based on Steve Harris. 3D Realms disputed the claims, particularly given these characters and all the associated items had been in use in their previous games, but they knew the lawsuit wasn't going to be worth the hassle, so they changed the name to Iron Fury and moved on. Next in line was KISS with their horror-based 3D shooter, Psycho Circus, The Nightmare Child, in 2000. This was developed by Third Law Interactive and based on Todd McFarlane's Psycho Circus comic books. You're asked to select between the four elders, the star bearer, the beast kind, the celestial and the demon, before being guided by a blind fortune teller, Madame Raven, into different realms unique to each avatar. You fight your way through weird monsters, working towards the Psycho Circus and eventually the Nightmare Realm, where you fight the Nightmare Child. Aren't they all Nightmare Children? The music during gameplay is not KISS music, as it was designed for the game to be context sensitive and adjust to gameplay. However, there are jukeboxes scattered throughout the world that can be activated to play KISS songs, or destroyed if you want them to stop. In 1999, as part of promotion, the game was exhibited at E3 along with Booth Babes, live music, and dwarves dressed as Kiss. This next one is The Game That Never Comes. Planned for 2003 on PC and PlayStation 2 was an open-world driving shooter game called Damage Inc. Yes, Metallica were meant to have their own video game following the release of Saint Anger, but it was not meant to be, with development being cancelled in late 2004. There is a trailer online and some concept art around for the game. It looks really post-apocalyptic street punk with Metallica themes. There's really not a whole lot else available on it. We have another mobile game in 2010 with Lordy the Game, published through Lapland Studio. It's a rhythm-based action game where you play as Lordy and you need to banish the undead from the underworld, while featuring music from their album Babes for Breakfast. Lordy apparently also had another game in development back in 2003, supposedly under the same name, but it was a point-and-click horror, so very different to what it became later on. Lordy aren't shy of monetizing. They've since released a grid-based matchup game called House of Spades. They've got their own card battle game called Monstropoly and so much more. I suppose they're happy to do a bit of a trade-off. Give me your money and I'll be your monster. Oh, shit. 
Did I get my monsters mixed up? No, of course not. That was Gwar with I'll Be Your Monster. And I played them not just because, like Lordy, they dress in elaborate monster-like costumes, or aliens in the case of Gwar, but because Gwar also have their place in the video game space. Plus, I actually like Gwar. So although not their game, Gwar heavily featured or were a main theme in the Beavis and Butthead game, which brings us into the space of metal-themed games. Released initially in three different versions of the game, all slightly varied for different platforms, the Beavis and Butthead game was based around those two buffheads trying to get their tickets to see Gwar. There are some differences with one game having you try to find their torn up Gwar tickets that have been scattered all over town so they can get to the gig, and another trying to just get money so they can buy a ticket. The end of the game has them getting to the gig and you get to see a video game performance from the band. In the late 90s, following their appearance in game, Gwar's Odorous Arungus was the spokesperson for Circuit City's video game commercials. He did this whole bit about being a game warrior and making sure you collected all the games to maintain that status. Unable to be licensed directly, but heavily inspired by metal, was the 1989 Japanese Famicom game, Holy Diver. For listeners who've been with me since I started out the podcast a few months ago, you might remember this one from my very first trivia episode. It's said to be a Castlevania ripoff, but the plot is wonderful. It's set in the 666th year of the World of Magic, and the Black Slayer, demon king of the underground Dark Empire, has extended the World of Darkness and weakened the power of King Crimson. The 16th Crimson Emperor, Ronnie Forth, has entrusted his two sons, Randy and Zack, to his faithful servant, Ozzy, who escapes to another dimension where the boys spend years devoting themselves to the cause of holy magic justice, before Randy sets out on a quest to obliterate the Black Slayer. There's some major metalheads on that development team. I can't talk about heavy metal video games and not talk about Brutal Legend. Developed by Double Fine Productions and released through EA for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, this third-person action game was released in 2009 with a port to PC in 2013. The game is set around Eddie Riggs, voiced by Jack Black, who's like the ultimate roadie, and is transported to this heavy metal-themed fantasy realm where he uses his guitar, an axe, a hot rod, and the magic of metal to fight evil supernatural beings and try to take down their overlords. There are a lot of battles and gameplay that are based around heavy metal tropes, like defending a giant stage from enemies, kind of like stopping alien fangirls from taking Journey's instruments, and building a headbanger army that Eddie directs like a war-type strategy game. Of course, there are some fantastic appearances in the game, which was very much influenced by Jack Black's presence, with Lemmy playing the Killmaster, Rob Halford as General Lion White, Ozzy Osbourne as the Guardian of Metal, and Lita Ford as the Amazonian Rima, based on Kiss. Originally, Dio had actually recorded some parts as Daviculus, Emperor of the Tainted Coil, but this part was later taken over by Tim Curry. There were reportedly some other difficulties in recording of lines, because there was a character in the game named Lita Halford. That caused a little bit of confusion for Rob Halford and Lita Ford when they were trying to figure out what lines were theirs for completely unrelated characters. Apparently, and not surprisingly, 
Jack Black and Ozzy Osbourne just kept swearing. But they decided to not only keep them in, but have fun with a censored version, including a profanity filter in the final game. If this was turned on, it would not only bleep out the words, but it would flash a little Parents Music Resource Center parental advisory icon on the screen as a bit of a nod back to all the censorship drama with the PMRC. Which, just to note, that's what my next episode is going to be looking at. I know it's been talked about a lot, but I want to discuss censorship, cancel culture, boycotts, all that fun stuff. Anyway, as part of marketing for the game, some journalists were sent records with backwards messages alluding to the game's story. And as part of its release, at Download Festival in Donington Park in 2009, EA arranged for about 440 fans to gather and break the Guinness World Record for the largest number of air guitar players while blasting Ace of Spades. Jack Black, not one to shy away from some cosplay, went to the Video Music Awards in 2009 dressed as Eddie to promote the game, and then did the same for Jimmy Kimmel Live, staying in character for the interview. What a fucking legend. The game features music from bands like Diamond Head, Angel Witch, Children of Bodom, Motorhead, Girl School, Judas Priest, Death Stars, Mastodon, Manowar. Uh, it's so, so much. But they really wanted some Metallica and ACDC on the list. Unfortunately, the licensing fees for both of them were way too high. They did also try to get Iron Maiden on board, but Iron Maiden weren't keen. Apparently, they were concerned that there might be some assumptions that they'd endorsed the game, especially with a character named Eddie Riggs, given their mascot Eddie was designed by the artist Derek Riggs. Come on, guys. You put out Ed Hunter, and you're worried about seeming to have endorsed Brutal Legend. Anyway... Back in 2017, they were still talking about doing a sequel to Brutal Legend, so who knows, maybe one day we'll get another one. More of a side note, but it's worth mentioning that the role-playing game Victor Vran released a special edition in 2017, the Overkill edition, Motorhead Through the Ages, so Lemmy got another in-game appearance in that one. Also released in 2017, a game I haven't yet checked out, Coffee Crisis, apparently has the baristas fighting aliens and throwing them into the mosh pit of annihilation, which sounds pretty cool. Okay, so we talked about Quest for Fame before, an early rhythm game using the V-Pick, their specialty guitar, and then the introduction of the V-Sticks. Well, in 1999, Konami expanded on this with the Japanese arcade games Guitar Freaks and Drum Mania, where they developed more sophisticated controller systems and they really set the basis for what would follow. From 2005, we got the absolute ripper of a game and the main reason my PlayStation 2 still maintains a place on my TV unit, Guitar Hero. Do I need to describe this one? I mean, I will. You, you play as a rock star from a choice of avatars where you play your way through a range of gigs and music using a guitar-shaped controller with buttons on the fretboard, a strum bar, and a whammy bar. Playing along while you listen to a mix of rock, punk, and metal? What's not to love? The game was a hit with what seems like an endless run of sequels, especially if you consider the mobile games, handhelds, and the arcade versions. Sequels included Legends of Rock featuring boss battles with Tom Morello and Slash, the DS version on tour, the band-specific Aerosmith, Metallica, and Van Halen, and the World Tour game, fourth in releases, was the first to feature drums and microphone controllers to expand and compete against the rock band series that had kicked off in 2007. 
Also in competition, or in a similar vein, were Frets on Fire in 2006, an open source version where people could create and upload whatever tracks they wanted, and one that was more appealing for actual musicians or those learning to play, Rocksmith. This one required you to use an adapter to plug in a real guitar and play along that way instead. I loved and still love Guitar Hero. I spent so many hours either chilling out and playing along on my own, or it was a fun way of listening to music but keeping yourself busy while hanging out and talking shit with your friends. I have a big family, so with so many siblings, there was always someone to play with, and when the rock band and world tour stuff came out, we could easily fill all places in the band. The only issue was arguing over who was going to play what role. I remember as well going to see some mates play a gig at a pub where they were running a Guitar Hero competition, and I think it was either the finals or coming up to the finals, and that was on just before the gig, so we watched all this beforehand. People took it so damn seriously. There was this guy who went off stage crying once he was beaten, and I could not believe it. Like, there's no shame in feeling your emotions, but it was a lot for some Guitar Hero. The only downside of this game was when you played stuff on difficult levels or with people who were garbage and all you would hear were those awful thunks to indicate you'd missed the marks. I'll be honest, this led me to being a bit harsh on Dragon Force. I played them off as this dicky, look at what we can do band and never really sat and enjoyed their music. There was definitely too many listens to a funk heavy through the fire and flames. My opinion of them has changed and their drummer, G Anzalone, does those hilarious duets every week. So I'm much more on board for their music these days. For the love of Guitar Hero, here's what is definitely the longest song I've ever included on the podcast, Through the Fire and Flames. That was Dragon Force with Through the Fire and Flames. Now we're going to take a look at a few other metal and video game crossovers. First up, in Jack and Daxter, the precursor legacy, Dee Snyder voiced one of its two main villains, Gol Asheron, a pale and grey old man who can fly and teleport, and who in the final boss fight even sneaks in the line, we're not going to take it. Avenged Sevenfold have had numerous songs placed in Call of Duty Black Ops games, as well as composed some original tracks for the games. For Black Ops 2, they composed the song Carry On, which featured in the post-credits scene that showed the band performing the song alongside some of the characters from the campaign. And in the Black Ops zombie map, Call of the Dead, there's a poster on the wall made to look like a Soviet propaganda poster, headed with a Russian title that translates to Avenged, and featuring five of the band members, including the Rev, despite him not being involved in the songs for this one and having passed about 18 months prior. Also in Call of Duty, finest hour to be precise, was Brian Johnson of ACDC, who voiced the character Sergeant Bob Starkey. Fred Durst has managed to score himself a couple of game appearances as a playable character. Firstly, with WWF Smackdown, Just Bring It, a title which feels appropriately cringy for this Limp Biscuit frontman. There was a reason for this, though. At the time, The Undertaker was using their song Rollin' for his entrance music in matches, so of course they wanted this as part of the game, and Fred Durst was included as an unlockable character. You needed to play slobber knocker mode with The Undertaker, and if you got more than 15 wins, you'd unlock him. Or you could use cheat codes. What's weirder is that a few years later, he was again a playable character, this time in the Fight Club game. This isn't because of his lyrics in Living It Up, where he says, I've seen the Fight Club about 28 times. No, this, this wasn't a nice little fan placement. It sounds like his deals for the WWF game made him bring something similar across, 
and apparently his demands were that any video game licensing and using music from his band must include him as a playable character. So he was unlocked after you beat story mode. It seems though that the first rule about Fight Club, that you don't talk about Fight Club, is not the only rule, because the second is that you don't play Fight Club. (laughs) Uh, From what I've heard, it's garbage. I guess the silver lining is that you could pit Durst against Meatloaf, who played the character Bob, just as he did in the movie. I know I'd love to watch Meatloaf kick Fred Durst's ass. In 2005, the game Infected, a zombie shooter, was released for the PlayStation Portable. As well as featuring tracks from Slipknot, Fear Factory, Trivium, Chimera and Il Nino, you could unlock all nine members of Slipknot as playable characters, as well as Chimera vocalist Mark Hunter. The studio who managed the sound effects and voice recording was Evolution Studios, previously known as Herrera Productions, which is co-owned by Raymond Herrera, drummer of Fear Factory. Fantasy-based action role-playing game Sacred released a sequel, Sacred 2 Fallen Angel, in 2008, for which Blind Guardian wrote and recorded the theme song, something the band had been wanting to do for a long time. But they also decided to give them a place in the game, including a quest in which you have to retrieve the band's equipment so they can play their gig. Once the quest is completed, you're treated to their live performance of the theme song, with giants, orcs, elves, and all sorts of monsters and adventurers rocking out in the pit. A man who's made quite the mark is Mike Patton, and not just for his work with Faith No More, you know, Mr. Bungle, Tomahawk, his solo stuff, and the endless list of music he creates including in 2021, where he was a part of a remake of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song used in the trailer for the game Shredder's Revenge. But he's also voiced a number of video game characters. In the game The Darkness and The Darkness 2, he voiced the force known as The Darkness. In Portal, he voices the Angus Fear during the final battle with the crazy computer GLaDOS. He voiced Nathan Rad Spencer, the main character in Bionic Commando, And in one of my all-time favourite video games, Left 4 Dead, he did the voices for most of the zombies. It makes so much sense. If you need gross and scary sounding monsters, screams, roars, blechs and breeze, metal vocalists would be a perfect fit. This is why Dead by Daylight features a whole lot of vocalists, including those from Allegion, Your Last Wish, Entheos, First Fragment, Stridskvina, Necrotic Mutation, and more. And the RPG Crystalla has brought in vocalists from deathcore groups, Signs of the Swarm, Lorna Shaw, Fit for an Autopsy, and Renaissance. Diablo being a game filled with imagery that very much aligns to heavy metal, the spooky, the satanic, the monstrous, they've paired up with metal musicians a few times. For Diablo 2, Lacuna Coil's Christina Scabia, who also streams gaming sessions on Twitch, paired up with YouTuber Mark the Hammer to do a version of the song Start Again for the promotion of the game. For the mobile game Diablo Immortal, Blizzard paired with the label Music for Nations, playing on their links to the metal and alternative communities. A promo video showed the bands Bury Tomorrow and Witch Fever, as well as Danny Filth of Cradle of Filth all playing the game, and Danny Filth continues this partnership with regular promotion and videos of him playing the game. I'm sure there are loads of metalheads and musicians who play video games. There are a bunch who've mentioned things in interviews, but I thought I would touch on a few that I found particularly interesting, or where they gave us more than just Jonathan Davis likes to play Zelda, for example. So Trevor of the Black Dahlia Murder was apparently a big gamer, loving the nostalgia of the early stuff. He was asked about this in an interview once and said that games do the same thing that metal does. 
It's an escape to another world for a little while. You don't need to think about your problems, whatever, just have fun, which I agree with. I think that's definitely something that these two things have in common. Matt Heafy of Trivium has been a longtime streamer, not only for games, but he's taken advantage of Twitch to stream practice sessions and jamming cover songs. He was at least at one stage endorsed by Zeus. Corpse Grinder of Cannibal Corpse is really into Warcraft, and he always plays the Horde. In the liner notes of the Kill album, he wrote Fuck the Alliance as a stab at those who play as the opposing group, the Alliance. And it shows when playing The Time to Kill is Now, he's often opened up with, this goes out to all you motherfuckers playing Alliance. He said once that when people found out that he played, they'd seek him out and then he's seen all these kids at shows and stuff who are just really excited to tell him how they killed him in game once. Because of this, Blizzard have added a character into the game with a very similar name as a bit of a nod to Corpse Grinder, even though it's not an official Corpse Grinder character. I also remember playing Shadow of Mordor for the first time and I lost my shit when I killed an Uruk named Corpse Grinder, so there must have been a fan amongst that team as well. We've already talked about Jack Black a little bit today, given his role and influence in Brutal Legend, but outside of that, he has his own gaming YouTube channel. He was in the new Mario movie, of course, including writing his song about Bowser's love for Peach, which he lent right into. He did the same thing as he did for Eddie, and he appeared on talk shows um, and everything else dressed as Bowser. And earlier this year, Tenacious D released a song about video games and then played it at this year's Game Awards show. Apparently, he feels that one of his greatest achievements is beating Project Gotham Racing on expert mode. And although I can't confirm what games he's into, supposedly Dave Mustaine is also quite a fan. He has said in an interview before that video games and metal need each other and they just can't help it. It's like they're drug addicts. They're addicted to each other. Metal music makes people salivate. It makes them happy. It gives them what they want. When they're mad, they don't go and put on a Beatles track. When they want to get in their car and drive fast, they don't put on Pet Shop Boys. It's metal that feeds that fire, that unquenchable thirst. And when you're playing a video game, I think if you're not capturing the moment musically and with the intensity of the game, people are going to drift to sleep. You need something that's going to keep people enwrapped and a really good riff will keep people excited. That leads us into our next topic, video game soundtracks, starting with Megadeth's contribution of Duke Nukem. That was Megadeth with Duke Nukem. Duke Nukem, titled after its main character, is an action game that started as a platform and then moved to a mix of first and third person shooters. For the third installment, Duke Nukem 3D, Megadeth were commissioned to do that version of the theme song. I've heard that there's a version that uses voice clips from the actual game, but possibly due to copyright, Dave added his own in this version to allow release on their own compilations like War Chest. This isn't the first time Megadeth were commissioned for something games related either, with them doing a version of the X Games theme back in the 90s. Metal soundtracks work pretty much everywhere and can either make a game completely or greatly enhance the experience. One game that uses this to its advantage in what is a very simple concept was Vidgrid. I played the shit out of this as a kid, but it's just a puzzle game. The difference being that the puzzle was a grid of varying difficulties over a running music video, so it's ever-changing. But you get to relax, do a puzzle, and listen to the music while you're at it. I thought it was pretty cool. This had a track listing of Aerosmith, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Van Halen, Ozzy Osbourne, and more. I remember in particular playing No More Tears on repeat, as well as Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer because I thought that clip was the weirdest thing ever. 
a franchise that I'm sure would have introduced loads of people to new bands, or even to the genres themselves, was the Tony Hawk skating games. These always had an interesting mix of rock, metal, probably mostly punk, um, a little bit of grunge and some hip hop. The Pro Skater series was probably the most iconic, featuring Primus, Suicidal Tendencies, Anthrax, Rage Against the Machine, Motorhead, ACDC, and System of a Down, amongst others. On the heavier side of things, in the game Proving Ground, they featured At the Gates and Pig Destroyer, while Underground had a track by Entombed. For the 2020 remake of Pro Skater 1 and 2, they used the same tracks as the original, but there was DLC that you could buy that would get you some Metallica tracks, including All Nightmare Long. And it would unlock James Hetfield and Robert Trujillo as playable characters. Another franchise known for its diverse tracks and introducing people to music is Grand Theft Auto. There are always radio stations you can flick through and listen to while running over the innocent and not-so-innocent pedestrians, robbing bitches, and whatever the actual missions are. One radio station worth a mention is the LCHC in GTA 4, The Lost and the Damned. Not only did this feature bands like Bathory, Cannibal Corpse, and Sepultura, but the radio host, the voice that yells the name of each track before it plays, is Max Cavalera. Whether it's something to support the high energy and fast movements, or needing something heavy and loud to drown out the sounds of you hitting the scenery, driving and racing based games are a great fit for metal. The 1997 driving combat game Carmageddon involved racing, damaging competitors' vehicles, and collecting bonuses by running over pedestrians. To give a little boost to the carnage, the game featured a number of tracks from Fear Factory. Similar to Carmageddon, we had the series Twisted Metal that incorporated a range of weapons you could attach to your car or drop to impact incoming competitors. It was a bit more Demolition Derby. The soundtrack to this one is a bit eclectic. It has Crazy by Patsy Cline, who I love by the way, but then it jumps to White Zombie, Sepultura, Judas Priest and Sammy Hagar. The 90s motorbike racing game, Road Rash, featured a bunch of Soundgarden tracks and even had some Monster Magnet. It was designed that if you left it sitting for too long, it would start playing video clips kind of like a screensaver. Also, early 90s was another vehicular combat-based game, Rock and Roll Racing, which had a killer soundtrack, including the perfect for a car game, Highway Star by Deep Purple, some Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Rush and George Thorogood. Another racing franchise worth note is Burnout, which featured game mechanics designed to encourage more aggressive and risky driving. This did feature some metal, including Trivium, Shadows Fall, Killswitch Engage, Alice in Chains, Twisted Sister, and Airborne, but it was more kind of emo and alt-heavy. However, the developers of Burnout released what is essentially a spiritual sequel a few years ago called Dangerous Driving. This does not include a soundtrack. Instead, it allows you to link directly into your Spotify and play kind of any playlists that you wanted. If we look at action and shooters, the soundtrack can make a huge difference to the feel of the game. The right music sets the scene and impacts the way you focus and the way your body reacts. Outside of the general escape, more intense games can play on your fight or flight responses and really get the adrenaline pumping. This is not only fun, but it's an important thing for people to explore in some way or another, especially for people with anxiety. I'll preface this by saying I'm not a mental health professional, so don't take this as an absolute. But 
Anxiety is generally your body like tripping into fight or flight mode, even when there's nothing major there to provoke it. For some, the best response is, you know, try to calm yourself down, the whole breathing exercises and all that. It doesn't work for everybody. So for some people, introducing a reason for that fight or flight, allowing your body to actually play that out properly can be so much more cathartic and really have a longer lasting impact. This could be exploring sports, extreme sports in particular. It could be something like exploring BDSM or as simple as playing a video game with the right music. There are loads of action and shooters that use heavy metal tracks, including things like Army Corps of Hell, Splatterhouse, which featured Goat Hall, Municipal Waste, Lamb of God and Mastodon, Metal Gear Rising, and more recently, the rhythm-based shooter, Metal Hellsinger, where you kill stuff to the beat of metal tracks. But the one I think has the most impact, and that is the most iconic, is Doom. The original games composed by Bobby Prince contain tracks that are all either inspired by or essentially copies of heavy metal tracks, including the track Kitchen Ace and Taking Names, which is Rise by Pantera, Hiding the Secrets, which is We Die Young by Alice in Chains, Sean's Got the Shotgun from Doom 2 is South of Heaven by Slayer, and there are a bunch of unused midis that featured other artists that kind of never made the cut. When Doom was ported to the 3DO, which I think is a really interesting story on its own, to summarise, this dipshit Randy Scott bought the rights and thought that all you needed to do was essentially copy a retail version to a different format. He didn't know all the work that needed to go into it or the coding requirements. He made promises of all this extra content. He spent shitloads of money on filming cutscenes and was advertising like mad, but didn't actually make the game. After a couple of other developers quitting and not far from the cutoff of the licensing dates, Rebecca, or Becky Heinemann, was brought on board and found out just how little had been done. She's an absolute legend, and she managed to get this game done on her own in less than 10 weeks. But Randy was an absolute pain in the ass and made her life hell throughout the process. At one stage, she found out that they didn't have the music, so she very cleverly distracted Randy, who'd been boasting about his band, by putting him to the job of recording the soundtrack. This not only gave her a bit more space to smash out the coding, but the music that came from it was actually really good. Not as good as what we got from Doom 2016, though. Aussie Mick Gordon, who'd also done the soundtrack for the latest Wolfenstein, was brought in to work on the new Doom, and holy fucking shit, this soundtrack is incredible. He was originally told he couldn't use any guitars, even though this was pretty iconic to the Doom sound at this stage. So he played it around with a lot of different methods until he created this system of pedals that kind of resembled different distorted instruments and all these feedback loops that gave him a really cool sound and a way to make adjustments that work really well with the stems involved in adjusting the sound to the context of gameplay. Eventually he was able to bring guitar in, kind of sneakily, as another resembled instrument, but he incorporated work on a nine string that gave us songs like this. That was Rip and Tear by Mick Gordon. This soundtrack is perfection in terms of the balance it provides for a video game, with the softer aspects to build suspense, the droning sounds that build that fear, and the heavier parts for a sense of urgency and forcing you to move to action. But the soundtrack versions outside of the game, they make for awesome listening. 
At the 2016 Game Awards, Mick played the Doom soundtrack live alongside Matt Halpin from Periphery, and it goes so fucking hard. You need to look that one up on YouTube. Quake, the spiritual sequel to Doom, had its soundtrack composed by Trent Reznor and gave a bit of a nod with the Nine Inch Nails logo being stamped on the side of the ammo boxes for the nail gun. I had a couple of other notes on soundtracks, including that in Max Payne 2, if you beat the game, you'd be treated to a track by Finnish metal band Poets of the Fall. For Halo 2, Steve Vai was brought in to perform a heavy metal version of the Halo theme. John Petrucci of Dream Theatre wrote two tracks for a Sega Saturn pinball game, Necronomicon. And in 1994, Rise of the Robots was released absolutely plastered with labels stating, includes tracks from Brian May, when in reality it had about three chords from one song. Metal music and video games have another crossover in a subgenre called Nintendo Core. This is basically nerdy metal or nerdy versions of alt music with video game themes. This includes artists like Horse and the Band, I See Stars, I Fight Dragons, and my favourites, Power Glove and the Zelda themed band Master Sword. That was Master Sword with Behind the Mirror. Before we jump into the new releases and whatnot, I do want to do a bit of a shout out to some awesome YouTube creators whose videos I watched or rewatched while researching for this episode. Mini Me did a very thorough video on the Queen game, The Eye. Tamara Arcade creates awesome videos in general, but did one on Iron Maiden's Ed Hunter as she's also a massive metalhead. Civi11, that's C-I-V-V-I-E-11, did one on Power Slave and I think one on Iron Maiden, but every one of Civi's videos is an absolute banger, so just go check them out. Stop Skeletons From Fighting has a video detailing all the drama on the Doom 3D airport. It's very entertaining and worth having a look at. Doom Kid has a cool video on Doom song comparisons for the tracks used versus the metal tracks they were taken from or inspired by. <laughs> And Liam Triforce did this wicked video on Mick Gordon's Doom tracks, going into great detail about how the sound design and the stems work, which I'd never really heard anyone talk about before. To give us one more video game track for today, here's a metal version of Tetris. That was Power Glove with Tetris. I'm going to skip the normal news, given that this episode is later than normal. I feel like if I do news, I'll end up just kind of recapping clickbait bullshit from Metal Injection or the like, or talking mostly about Sabaton, because those guys always have a lot going on. It's honestly super impressive. Actually, I will mention, go check out the History Rocks program with the animated movie Sabaton are working on, The War to End All Wars. They're working on getting it into museums around the world in November for Armistice Day or Remembrance Day here, which would be really cool. I've put forward the Melbourne Museum in their suggestions, but so far the only museum in Oz that's signed on is the Army Museum of South Australia. I tell you what though, if it doesn't get played in Vic, I'm totally down for a road trip. Anyway, I will go into new releases, but first I'll share, what have I been up to? What's been giving serotonin some serotonin? Well, I ran my first ever in-person heavy metal trivia event at the Mod Isley Cantina, which is a cool little Star Wars themed venue in Cowes on Phillip Island. It was a small gathering. There were unfortunately a number of cancellations on the night, which made it a little bit tricky, but we had enough to play and it was lots of fun. I'm really grateful to the group that were there for being my guinea pigs. Being in person, I was able to play with some image and video based questions, and we did a couple of matchup mini games, including pairing up the Motley crew member with their babes in a game I called Girls, Girls, Girls very original, I know. 
It was really fun putting some different elements into the mix though and really pushing myself with the public speaking side of things. Once the bar's fully licensed and we can run open nights rather than private events, they'll hopefully have me back for another round. If you happen to be based in Victoria or you visit the island, make sure you stop by the cantina and keep an eye out on my page for more trivia nights. For July, I had one gig to attend and it was an absolute ripper. I went to Singing Bird Studio in Frankston for a night of death and gore with headliners exhumed who were so fucking rad. Brutal, fun and just so damn good. They were supported by Fish Lizard, Munitions, Hormagaunt, Carnal Viscera and Faceless Burial. All the support acts were fantastic, Carnal Viscera were fucking great, and their vocalist got to jump up and play the Doctor for Exhumed, throwing body parts and bones into the crowd, blasting them with blood red paint, and doing a whopper of a dive into the crowd at the start of Exhumed's set. A bunch of people went down though, and they went down hard. While they were scrambling to get back up, he was just like standing in the middle of the pit, lassoing intestines around and throwing a decapitated head around. It was really funny. But the absolute standout to me for the night was, and you'll know this already if you follow my social media pages, it was Munitions. I don't mean to fangirl, but honestly, I just cannot get enough of them right now and I'm really keen for their next EP. They play a wonderful balance of this fucking brutal blackened death metal with some melodic aspects thrown in. I might have a chance to include them in the next new releases once their new EP comes out, but fuck it, any excuse to promote the locals, let's take a listen to Black Wind. That was Munitions with Black Wind. Let's talk recent metal releases for the month of July. As always, most of the bands that I mention here will be included, amongst others, in the Sin and Steel new releases playlists on both Spotify and YouTube, which you can find through the link tree in the podcast description or on my social media bios. Let's start hard and talk about death metal and adjacent, starting with Grindcore. In full-length albums, we've had Ixius release Compulsive Trance, Chapang have come out with the album Swatter, which is delightfully dirty with these cool little grooves. Clot with Grief Tethers, which is a pretty sick album title, and Organ Dealer with The Weight of Being. In death metal, for EPs, we've had the brutal, stank-face-inducing putridity with Greedy, Gory, Gluttony, Malicious with Merciless Storm, and some Blackened Death for Ascendancy with A Manifest of Imperious Destiny. Album releases include The Crusty Death, self-titled Cryptus. We have Serpent Corpse with Blood Sabbath and Ageless Summoning with Corrupting the Entempled Plane, both of which have some morbid angel-type influence, and Exsanguination with Burial Rites. For a killer combo of blackened sludgy death, we have Thra with Forged in Chaotic Spew, and the wonderful melodic death album from Astralborn, Across the Aeons. This album is a standout for me. It starts off with this beautiful, soft guitar-focused intro, which is a great way to start a death metal album. You know, it creates that really cool contrast before it slams your eardrums with some fast and brutal drums, sick riffs, and harsh vocals. It's a great album with what to me is kind of perfect pacing of songs. From this album, here's Skybreaker. That was Astralborn with Skybreaker. Moving on to black metal, we had an EP release from Stangarigal with Metaphysica Barbastva, and albums from Fen with Monuments to Absence, Somonate with We Have Proved Death, and two releases from Odds Manuk with Bozora Gazan and Tzu. 
T-Z-U-R-R. In Doom, we have the EP It's All the Same from Monolord, Cult of Sebek with Petsuchos, the album Streams of Rot from Formless Odon, and Moribound from Eternal Rot. So much rotting. In Thrash, we have a split from Inhuman Nature and Ninth Realm with Beyond the Realms of Sanity, which is this really cool thrashy death mix. We had an EP from Fugitive with Blast Furnace and albums from Manza with Imios Invocation of Ebolus, Atonement with Sadistic Invaders and Pizza Death with the extra cheesy crossover thrash album Reign of the Antichrist. Pizza Death are another local from my home state of Victoria in Australia, so you're getting spoilt with Aussie metal today because I can't not share this one. Let's get into some gnarly salami. That was Pizza Death with Gnarly Salami. Look, I'm a bit spewing because they were doing their album launch gig on the same night I was going to see Elm Street. Otherwise, I would have been really keen to go check them out. But next time. In the traditional metal space, we have loads of albums, including The Night Eternal with Fatal, Flight with Echoes of Journeys Past, Tail Gunner with Guns for Hire, Chrome Skull with Screaming to the World, and Girl School with What the 45. We did listen to a single release from the Girl School album in the last main episode, so I won't put them on again. However, it's definitely worth checking out. Bit of Velvet released the album Unleashed Fears. This is a really fun album. So let's check out their track Princess Within. That was Bit of Velvet with Princess Within. For some power metal, we've had singles from Peyton Parrish with A God of War track, just linking back to our video games, and Viking Rise. Skullmold released Italy, a really cool folk metal Viking type mix, and Iron Savior released the track Through the Fires of Hell. In albums, we have Bloodbound with Tales of the North, Fjörschwans with Figafjör. I have no clue how to pronounce that name. <laughs> I have wondered if when I struggle with pronunciations, should I just lean into like super bogan Aussie accent instead? I do feel like I have to at least try, but I'm fucking useless. Anyway, you can find them through Napalm Records, and if you look for the song Bastard Von Asgard, you'll find them. All for Metal released the album Legends. I have been absolutely smashing these guys lately. I started following them when one of the guitarists, JJ, came up as a suggested person to follow. She's a redheaded babe, super cute, but badass, you know, dressed in chainmail and leather. I couldn't not follow, right? Based on their look, I kind of assumed they'd just be another gimmicky band, and yeah, they lean into that look, but they're actually really great and they tick so many boxes for me in what I love about power metal. Interestingly, at least to me, they have two main vocalists who they complement each other really well. One of which, Tetzel, is a professional bodybuilder and a strongman, and the way he gets presented in their clips and stuff, it seems to be almost like not so much a frontman, but the mascot of the band as well, which is kind of funny and totally works. They're really into the visuals. They even have their own go-go dancers, like they call them their showgirls, who get dressed up in the same chainmail and leather gear. And they don't just appear so often in the video. They travel with the band and perform on stage with them. They're just considered part of the band. I love it. Again, if you follow my social media, you'll have seen me share the video for Mountain of Power, in which the camera kind of pans to Tetzel as he comes in with his deep voice saying Mountain of Power, while these flames roar behind him and the dancers are just rubbing themselves all over him. It's fantastic. They remind me a little bit of Hammerfall, particularly with this song. It makes me think of Hearts on Fire, not just musically, it does have some similarities there, 
but mostly because they just give me that same feeling of like pure joy. I have to sing along. I have to play it on repeat. It's just so much fun. So here is Mountain of Power. That was all for metal with Mountain of Power. I'd love to know, what's your favorite video game? And were there any musicians or songs that you got into through the soundtrack of a video game? Send me a message or comment through social media or email me at sinandsteel at outlook.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to and share the podcast and make sure to follow Sin and Steel on social media. Check out my link tree in the episode description to access playlists, including songs from the episode, and to be directed to the Sin and Steel Redbubble store for merchandise featuring artwork designed by me. Thanks for listening in to episode 10 of Sin and Steel. The game is on. I'm your host, Sarah Tonin. And sinners, until next time, stay metal. Stay metal.